Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. Today, we're diving into our archives to play you excerpts from a discussion that took place in 2012. The discussion was called Understanding Our Brains, Understanding Ourselves, and it brought together an expert panel of Columbia alumni and professors to talk about the brain. So if you've ever wondered what smell New Yorkers like the most and what smell they hate, well, that's an odd thing to wonder, but you've definitely come to the right place, and you'll find out about that answer in a bit. But first up, you're going to hear from Richard Axel. Axel is a professor of biochemistry, molecular biophysics, and pathology at the Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons. He's also a Nobel laureate. And actually, he also wants to talk a bit about smell. This problem of how the external world is represented in the brain is not simply a creative force in art. It stands at the center of philosophy, psychology, and neuroscience. We are interested in how the external olfactory world is represented in the brain. More generally, we're interested in the astonishing problem of how it is that the external world, which consists of physical properties, wavelengths of light, frequencies of sound, chemical structures that define odors and tastes, which have discrete physical properties, can actually be represented and sensed in a brain which only consists of neurons, nerve cells. And these nerve cells can only do one thing, and that is fire, spike, and they can only do so and and, uh, vary in two parameters, time and space. And this is an astonishing problem. Now, the observation that you take the real world, since that's all that's out there, and actually are capable of representing it by this rather homogeneous set of neurons immediately tells you that what the brain is doing is abstracting. The brain does not simply recreate the world in the world's own image. It creates the world in a a brain image using a language that we do not understand, but we are currently trying to decipher. And I will very briefly try and describe to you how we are trying to sort out how the brain knows what the nose is smelling. The epithelium of the nose consists of a set of neurons on the tips of which reside odor receptors. There are a thousand of them. Five to 5% of all the genes in your chromosome are dedicated to the recognition of odors. Each of these cells makes one of the thousand receptors, and they're disarrayed in your nose, but order is restored as they send a process into the brain, and all the cells that make the same receptor converge on a single point. This, if there are a thousand receptors, there are a thousand points. We get into a problem 
because most odors, as you all know, are not innate. They are learned. There are virtually no odors in humans that elicit innate behavior that you are aware of. Um, and what we observe is the region of the brain responsible for innate behaviors discards this order and projects to cortex, a structure called olfactory cortex, in a dispersive, unstructured way which exhibits none of the spatial order that we observe earlier in the brain. In fact, here is the pattern of neural activity in cortex, and what you see is different odors are represented in the very same way, and the best explanation for this is that it's a mess. It's random. There, each odor appears to activate a random ensemble of neurons. And I argue that that's good, because if it activated a fixed ensemble of neurons, then you might respond to a given odor in a fixed way. And for most odors, you do not wish to do this. You wish to learn the significance of this odor and respond appropriately. So you've got this random, disordered abstraction of the world in your brain. And one must, through learning, impose meaning. So what I've described to you, however briefly, is the notion that the cognitive brain, that is the olfactory cortex, is, is representing odors as an abstraction, as a random distribution of neurons. And if the distribution is random, it can have no meaning. And meaning must be imposed by experience to allow the same odor to have a different, to elicit a different percept in different individuals. Thank you. Next, we have Leslie Vossel, who is one of Richard's former students and an alumna of Columbia College. Like Axel, she's quite interested in studying the sense of smell. She's the one who knows New Yorkers' preferred odors. She's also interested in what makes mosquitoes hover over your head and choose you for their next meal. And she's currently a professor of neurogenetics and behavior at Rockefeller University. Here's Vossel. Thank you so much for coming. I think it's great to see the show of support in the Columbia community. Richard has done foundational work on the sense of smell in the mouse. Um, and although I do wear pantyhose to collect human scents for my mosquito work, I'll tell you briefly what we do with the human sense of smell. The sense of smell, it's so important for everything about enjoyment of life, but there can be 5% of human beings walking around on Earth completely unaware that they have no sense of smell. This really is an astonishing finding. People will sit there for three hours and say, oh, it reminds me of when I was in a meadow as a child bouncing around. Three hours later, they're still excited to smell, and we look at the data, and they are unable to smell anything. <laughs> so there's a delusion to the sense of smell, which I didn't anticipate. 
And so the second thing that I've learned in studying the sense of smell in humans um, is that there's an enormous diversity. For those 95% who can smell something, there's an enormous uh, diversity of opinion about what something smells like. So in surveying a few hundred New Yorkers, we learned that um, genetics has a big effect on how we sense odors, but culture also has a really big effect. However, we can say, what is the most pleasing sense across all ages and genders and races and marital status? Vanilla is the number one odor of New York of New Yorkers. <laughs> so we encounter vanilla in baked goods, we encounter vanilla um, in perfumes and shower gels, so we New Yorkers love vanilla. So what is the least favorite scent of New Yorkers? Isovaleric acid, which is the um, scent of sweaty feet, sweaty socks. <laughs> These things sort of make sense. Um, as Richard has mentioned, in his beautiful segment, of course, we have pleasing experiences with vanilla. We encounter it in baked goods um, and cookies and vanilla ice cream, and so we all associate it with good. Sweaty socks generally are not associated with good. Beyond this consensus that cuts across all races and ages and marital status and educational status, there are really incredible differences that segment by age and race and gender. So we can divide New Yorkers by these different segments, and the one I found most fascinating is people over 35 find licorice much more attractive than people under 35. I think because licorice is something that is it's kind of an antique scent. You, you discover it in Pernod and in candies, and it's, it's a scent that, that young people just don't get. So because they had an experience with licorice 30 years ago, 50 years ago, they find it pleasant. And so the last thing that we learned, which I think is, I, I lost out here because I didn't get someone who was a super smeller of this stuff, <laughs> is that genes play a huge role in how we perceive odors. And so you've all had this sense that if you, if you go into a room and you have cilantro, you can segment the room into the lovers and the haters of cilantro. Um, and you can segment the world into people who love this scent, people who hate it, and people who can't smell it. And so one thing we did a few years ago was try to associate what's going on in the genome of the person. The genome of the person has an effect on which of the several hundred odorant receptors the human nose expresses and how it's perceived. And so I could say that you probably have a mutation in the OR74 receptor, which makes you um, unable to perceive the, the rich intensity of this odor. So, so the, I'm not the, surprised. <laughs> and so you're one of the lucky ones, because to me, it's one of the most repugnant odors on Earth. But the point is that um, culture has an overshadowing effect about how we perceive the world. But we are also genetic creatures, and so there's several hundred odorant receptor genes. So just as there are a few of you who can't perceive this as red, because you're missing the receptors that encode um, red color vision, there are people running around the world missing receptors that makes them find cilantro not disgusting or beautiful. So this is what we do in my lab. Next up is Neil Snyder, who is a physician scientist and associate professor at the Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons. He's a graduate of Harvard and of the MD-PhD program at Columbia. He also completed his graduate work in Richard Axel's lab. Snyder's expertise is in neuromuscular development and disease, so he studies how the brain communicates with the muscles in health and disease, particularly in ALS. Here's Snyder. You know, you've heard from, from Leslie and Richard and some of the work that I do in my lab is all based on, on relatively simple systems like 
the fruit fly and the mouse um, that we use to uh, study the, the brain and the circuitry, circuitry that underlies complex behaviors. Um, and, and these are really powerful systems uh, to do this. And, and the studies that uh, come out of uh, labs that um, focus on these simple animals really, I think, uh, can tell us a lot both about the, the principle and the specifics of how our brain works and uh, how the circuits uh, function that underlie very uh, specific behaviors, our, our behaviors, and make us who and what we are. But the, the ultimate model, I think, of the, of the human brain is, of course, the, the, the human itself. Um, but we're really, as you can imagine, not a very good tractable model. Uh, we're not a good experimental model. We, we can't do the kind of invasive experiments that we do in the fly and in the mouse and even, and, and even primates. But, but there's a way around uh, this problem, and, and that's provided by nature. You know, uh, there's naturally occurring disease, neurological disease, and, and these diseases, diseases lesion the nervous system, um, and they do that in, in a variety of ways. And th these disorders reveal uh, specific functions of the nervous system, functions that we're usually not aware of, and we take for granted. So this is what neurologists do for the most part. We, we, we observe, characterize, and, and manage these disorders, disorders of memory and attention, language, mood, and personality. We look at deficits of, of motor and sensory function. And, and these, I think, provide really uh, important insights into the working of our nervous system. So these disorders uh, occur in a variety of ways. They occur as a consequence of stroke when uh, blood supply is, is compromised uh, to the brain. They occur as a consequence of traumatic injury, head injury, spinal cord injury that uh, results in, in loss of functions, demyelinating diseases which strip neurons of their insulation so that they uh, don't function, and uh, the Problems also occur as a consequence of, of degeneration, of neurodegeneration, so the loss of specific populations of neurons uh, that um, underlie specific functions, and their loss results in certain syndromes, Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, Huntington's disease, and uh, the disorder that, that I work on um, called uh, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS. So, as Jonathan uh, mentioned, in this country, ALS is, is uh, better known as Lou Gehrig's disease after the Columbia alum and a Yankee Hall of Famer who died of this disease in, in 1941. And, and 70 years uh, after Gehrig died, um, it's still sadly true that we have no medication that uh, significantly alters the natural history of, of this disease. We're, we're much better at managing patients, taking care of them, um, in important ways that, that improve the, the length and the quality of their life, but we, we, we have no uh, effective treatment for, for ALS. It, uh, this is a disorder that was first described by a very famous uh, French neurologist, uh, Jean-Martin Charcot, who also uh, uh, described uh, multiple sclerosis. Uh, in a very famous uh, paper in 1869, he described a, a lateral sclerosis, a hardening of the lateral columns uh, in the spinal cord. ALS is uh, essentially a disorder of, of two neuronal populations. The so-called upper motor neuron that sends a, an axon or a wire down uh, to the lower motor neuron in the brainstem and the spinal cord, and it activates that neuron, which sends 
a, a second axon, a wire, out to the muscle to, to activate the muscle. And, and this is, of course, a, a, a schematic. It's an oversimplification of, of the um, motor circuit. But, but the, the motor neuron is, is the major effector of uh, the, the nervous system. It, it, it's activation, all motor uh, function, all movement, depends on the activation of the motor neuron. And so when the lower motor neuron, again, the brainstem or the spinal cord, degenerates, we see muscle atrophy or wasting of the muscle. We see weakness of that muscle and, and a symptom and sign that patients often describe first in their disease called fasciculation or, twist, or twitching of the muscle. When the upper motor neuron in the motor cortex degenerates, we see overactive tendon reflexes like the simple knee jerk that your doctor will often elicit in, in, in the office. This becomes overactive. We see abnormal reflexes, we call clonus, and we see specific signs, uh, Hoffman, Babinski sign listed here, all uh, evidence of a loss of regulation of motor neuron function that occurs as a consequence of, of this disease. And because ALS is uh, such a deadly disease, patients live only three to five years on, on average, the number of patients who live with ALS at any one time is quite limited. Uh, the onset is uh, in the mid-50s on average, and the, for the most part, ALS is a sporadic disease, that, so that most of the patients that we see in the clinic have no family history. This occurs out of the blue um, with, with no warning. So what causes ALS? Simple answer is we really don't know. There's a lot of toxic environmental causes that have been suggested, viral infectious, autoimmune, inflammatory causes that have been investigated. None of these is known to cause ALS. The only known cause of ALS is, is genetic. So the, the question for the field that this list presents is, you know, how is it that, that all these genes, mutations in any one of these genes can cause a similar syndrome? How are they related? What are the common mechanisms that, that relate these? Um, and, and, and this is a major focus of the field and of my lab. Um, and I'll say just very briefly that what we do in my lab, uh, mostly working in the mouse, is to manipulate the mouse genome to introduce mutations that cause ALS in humans into the mouse and to create models of the disease that we then can use to, understand, uh, to, to find pathways that contribute to motor neuron degeneration and to identify targets that we hope we'll be able to use to develop drugs to help uh, our patients not only with the genetic forms of the disease, which represent only about 10% of the cases, but, but all patients. The final speaker is Lise Elliott, who got her PhD from the Columbia Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. She's now Associate Professor of Neuroscience at the Chicago Medical School of Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science. And she's the author of two books, What's Going On in There, How the Brain and Mind Develop in the First Five Years of Life, and Pink Brain, Blue Brain, how small differences grow into troublesome gaps, and what we can do about it. Here's Lise. This is going to be quite a, a change of gears, um, <laughs> hopefully to end on a little more uh, fun note. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to hope to tie this in a little bit with uh, especially some of the things that uh, Richard and Leslie were talking about, about this whole nature-nurture issue, about what is really, is how much of our behavior really is innate. And if we hear for even the sense of smell, which seems so almost reflexive to, to discover that even that is learned, I think really ties in nicely with what I hope to tell you about gender, which is that it ain't as hardwired as this idea of brain sex um, has lately portrayed. So here we are, um, I would say in the last 15 years or so, 
the topic of gender, uh, when people have started to delve into the uh, sex differences in the brain, this is what we're getting. In, um, I'm focusing on the popular side because I think it has had, uh, it's, it's a good example of how a little bit of science can be quite dangerous. And, uh, and yet it's had um, a pretty surprising impact on a lot of our culture. I'm particularly interested in its impact on kids and education, but even even business schools are now giving courses on gender-based uh, leadership and so on, based on these little horrible fragments of science that um, are quite distressing. So, um, but it really all started, of course, from here, right? This idea of Mars and Venus that were from different planets that men and women have uh, fundamentally different brains and can't communicate. So that's where uh, it started. And uh, um, for me, um, I'm more interested in, in the developmental side of things, and I discovered that when we talk about children, this Mars and Venus idea has really infiltrated the way that parents and teachers are thinking about their children. There's two um, culprits, if you will, who are uh, propagating this pseudoscience. Um, Leonard Sachs, who's a family physician who dropped his practice to write this book, Why Gender Matters, and he's written a couple more books um, where, again, you take a little bit of science and you turn it into this big story about hardwired uh, differences between boys and girls. This was just one little paper that um, tells us that he interprets as telling us that boys can't talk about their feelings because of the part of the brain um, isn't connected to language in boys. It's, it's, it's really quite fantasy. Um, and this idea has resonated around the country, the idea that boys and girls learn differently, which uh, if you really look at the neuropsychology of learning, and there's been lots of studies over the years, is completely unsupported by either psychological or, or um, neuroscientific data. Um, there are differences between males and females, I'll get to that in a moment, but this idea of categorically different learners and the idea we need to segregate boys and girls, believe it or not, 500 schools are now uh, across the country are doing that. Title IX's been totally revised. I'd love to talk about that more if you're interested, but. I want to really focus on what I'm interested in, uh, which is uh, s sex differences in the brain and this huge extrapolation. Sex differences in behavior, of course, males and females behave differently, boys and girls behave differently, but generally they're not quite as dramatic as our uh, Mars-Venus notions. Most of these sex differences, and this is where I was interested from a developmental point of view, are actually quite small in, quite small in infants. This idea that boys are not social at birth and, and uh, um, uh, that girls you know, talk a year earlier. In fact, the difference is about a month. They're quite small, but they grow larger with age. And um, in terms of this whole nature-nurture issue, I, should, I came into this sort of biased for the nurture side because of my training in Eric Kandel's lab, uh, trying to understand how experiencing the environment changes the brain. We know the brain's incredibly plastic, even in the case of odor uh, perception. Um, but um, uh, in terms of gender, um, the psychologists have understood this, but the neuroscientists um, are having a hard time appreciating that. Almost every one of our behavioral sex differences is quite small, uh, this d value of 0.35. And the reason we know that is because J Janet Hyde um, at University of Wisconsin-Madison did this meta-analysis of meta-analyses where she found that three-quarters of all of our sex differences are actually smaller. So there's just a lot of overlap in our ability to read emotion in other people, in our math ability, in our verbal ability. Uh, we really are not from different planets. You cannot predict based on somebody's gender what their abilities will be. And so rather than Mars and Venus, um, the, the better statement might be that women are from 
North Dakota, and men are from South Dakota. <laughs> what that tells us is that if there's these small psychological differences, I mean, we, there has to be a difference in the brain. We don't just think out of thin air. I think we all agree that now. But um, the actual magnitude of the differences uh, has, makes it hard to find differences in the brain. And at this point, there really is no clear link I mean, there's, uh, between brain and behavior for any of our well-known sex differences. So what do we know? Uh, a common um, uh, belief is that men tend to use both sides of the brain, and women, or one side of the brain, and women use both. In fact, um, you have to look at large studies, and that's the problem, is a lot of these myths get extrapolated from one study with 19 males and 19 females, and it's reproduced over and over in the popular media. But if we look at large populations, you see this overlap. Just like with the behavior, males and females are both left dominant. If, if females used both hemispheres symmetrically, we'd see a curve right there. But instead, I'm just trying to make the point that for our brains, like our behavior, it's a statistical distribution with much more overlap than difference. So that's, that's the take-home message, um, the myth of brain sex. Thank you. Thank you. As mentioned earlier, these are just excerpts from a longer discussion. If you'd like to hear the full talk, check out the link in the show notes for this episode, or visit thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu. This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association, with editing by Matt Lenz and music by Poddington Bear. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with more than 330,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu.